transmitting from the top of the Empire State Building on WBAI 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York. This is Trump Watch, a weekly series investigating the actions of and reactions to President Donald J. Trump and his administration. I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Conrad Tokyo, Sparrow, Pistachio, just The first 100 days, we've taken historic action to eliminate wasteful regulations. They're being eliminated like nobody's ever seen before. There's never been anything like it. Sometimes I look at some of the things I'm signing, I say, maybe people won't like it, but I'm doing the right thing. And no regular politician's going to do. I don't know if you folks would do. I will tell you, literally, some politicians have said, you're doing the right thing. I don't know if I would have had the courage to do some of these things, but we're doing them because it's the right thing to do, and it's for the good of the nation. Today, I'm signing a new executive order to end another egregious abuse of federal power and to give that power back to the states and to the people where it belongs. The previous administration used a 100-year-old law known as the Antiquities Act to unilaterally put millions of acres of land and water under strict federal control, eliminating the ability of the people who actually live in those states to decide how best to use that land. Today, we are putting the states back in charge. President Donald Trump speaking at the Department of the Interior in Washington, D.C. on April 26th at the signing of Executive Order 13792, or the review of designations under the Antiquities Act. The order called for Secretary of the Interior Ryan Zinke to review all presidential designations of national monuments dating back to 1996, the year President Bill Clinton designated Grand Staircase Escalante in southern Utah a national monument. Along with Bears Ears, also in Utah, designated a national monument by President Obama in 2016, many Utah residents reportedly saw the national monument designation of Grand Staircase Escalante as one of federal overreach. Utah Senator Orrin Hatch, praised later by President Trump in the same April 26th speech for his tenacity in getting the executive order signed, has been a major advocate for turning control over the monuments back to the states, as the president said, despite the fact that they've been federally controlled since being seized from indigenous peoples in the early history of the American West. Nevertheless, Secretary Zinke delivered his review of national monuments to the Commander-in-Chief on August 24th, and as reported in The Guardian, recommended boundary adjustments for several of the 27 national monuments under review. What will this shift in policy at the U.S. Department of the Interior mean for our national monuments? That's the topic of this week's show. Hello and welcome to Trump Watch. Of all the many policy shifts made by President Trump in his first 10 months in office, few have the potential for as long-term an effect as the rollback of federal lands. Will Trump go along with the Secretary of the Interior's recommendation? My guest Brian Calvert believes that reducing federal control over national monuments was the Trump administration's objective all along and explains why there is little empirical evidence to support the benefit of such a reduction in his August 24th Guardian editorial, The Trump Administration's National Monuments Review is a Sham. We spoke last week. Joining me now is Brian Calvert. 
the editor-in-chief of High Country News, a Colorado-based magazine that covers the American West. His editorial, The Trump Administration's National Monuments Review is a Sham, appeared in The Guardian on August 24th. Hello, Brian. Welcome to Trump Watch. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. Your op-ed for The Guardian was written in response to Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke's review of 27 national monuments dedicated under the Antiquities Act, which was delivered to, the, to President Trump that same day, uh, August 24th. Why do you think this review is a sham? Well, uh, I think this review is a sham because there's not a real good policy reason to do it, and it just seems to me like it's cynical politics. Uh, it seems like the kind of thing that the um, answers are already preordained. Uh, it didn't seem like a very thorough review. Uh, the Interior Secretary, Ryan Zinke, didn't really meet with all vested parties uh, who have a lot of interest in these national monuments, which are areas of cultural or historical significance. And, of course, in the complicated history of the American West and in the nation overall, you have a lot of different vested interests who might consider um, uh, cultural or historical artifacts or, or monuments important. Uh, Ryan Zinke did not meet with very many people, um, and so it kind of had this whiff of a rubber stamp to me. So you feel that this was just for show? I think it was so that they they already knew what they wanted to do, which was shrink some monuments which have sort of angered uh, some of the Republicans, especially in Utah, uh, who have Trump's ear. Uh, the way that Trump ordered the review really had a lot. Um, there was kind of a hint in there. So the Utah delegation has uh, always been angry at a uh, monument designation by Bill Clinton in 1996, that's Grand Staircase Escalante, and a lot of folks inside the, uh, Utah were also very angry when President Obama designated another monument in Utah, which is called Bears Ears, uh, kind of in the waning days of his presidency. So when President Trump ordered his review, somehow coincidentally he ordered this review exactly back to 1996 and only of monuments 100,000 acres or more, which conveniently includes Grand Staircase Escalante and also Bears Ears. So it just it has this feel to it of, of this, um, they're really going after these things, but they've selected 27 overall to review uh, right off the bat, uh, or eventually over the summer, six came off the docket. So 21, are, 21 monuments are now, uh, have been reviewed and are... Uh, Zinke's making his recommendations to Trump, but certainly it looks like Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears are going to see some um, some of their area diminished. What is it about those two monuments that angered people in Utah? Uh, in the American West, you have a broad swath of people who uh, don't like what they call federal overreach. They don't like federal government um in their affairs, and when President Clinton made this declaration and when President Obama made his declaration, those are seen as, um, by this sort of base of supporters, um, typically Republican, uh, white, um, 
those are seen as a sort of offensive overreach into uh, their local control within their states, even though these lands are actually owned by the federal government. You write in your article, here's the reason the president gave in April for ordering the review that monument designations can, quote, create barriers to achieving energy independence, restrict public access to and use of federal lands, burden state, tribal and local governments and otherwise curtail economic growth. Let's break down these arguments. And uh, starting with energy, um, as oil and natural gas advocates would say, isn't achieving energy independence an issue of critical national security. Sure, it may be, but uh, whether or not you have a monument sitting on top of uh, commercially recoverable hydrocarbon formations doesn't totally jive with this, this overall review. So, you know, in, in many cases, uh, these reviews are designated by presidents, and they all have very specific mandates inside of them. Um, they're often governed by the Bureau, Bureau of Land Management, or BLM, uh, and they, they often do allow for uh, leaseholders to continue to develop their, the energy deposits, whether or not there's a monument there at all. Um, the fact is that you know, prices for coal, oil, and uranium, and natural gas um, are low right now, and it doesn't make a lot of sense to go after them. So saying that by shrinking these national monuments or at one point saying that you could take away some of these national monuments would uh, contribute to energy independence is uh, not just not true. Okay, to your second point. Uh, this one is a little confusing to me. How is it that conservation of land could restrict public access to federal lands? That seems counterintuitive. Yeah, I think while well, the arguments are there were you know, there, there's different kinds of access to public lands um, out here in the West. Those public lands are often um, controlled with multiple uses in mind. So you want to have ranchers be able to graze their cattle in the same place where a mountain biker um, may want to ride a trail. Uh, you may want to produce uh, or grant mining claims in an area that's very close to where people enjoy beautiful hikes and vistas. So this multiple use um, mandate that the federal agencies have when they are governing land, um, those are generally kept in mind in these kinds of agreements or national monument designations. So the argument that, oh, if we turn this into a national monument, people aren't going to be able to graze their cattle uh, is one of, the, one of the fears of opponents of these national monuments. Uh, but the fact is that those leases also often are uh, grandfathered in a monument designation as well. So it's not a very strong argument. You point out that expressly prohibitive uses on monuments generally have to do with sale or leasing of land for mining and other extractive use, but are generally pretty open. That was actually news to me. Can you talk a little bit about what the laws are relating to the sale or leasing of public land for mining or other industrial purposes? Well, sure. So the federal government owns huge swaths of the West, and often those lands are open to... Um, leasing under certain circumstances, um, and that might be for mining or other extractives. So uh, fracking, for example, or coal mining, for example. Those are generally 
um, thought of as natural resources that um, can be uh, dug up or pulled out of the ground by the federal government, um, or, or at least leases can be provided to companies to do that, and royalties go to the government and sometimes to the states. And that's just a general arrangement on federal public land. Um, that cannot happen in, for example, a national park um, or a wilderness area. Those have tighter restrictions on them. But in national monument designations, which are designated by a president under the Antiquities Act, which came about in 1906, a president has wide authority to sort of circumscribe what kind of things can take place on these designated monuments. And that often is to appease those, you know, um, logging to a certain extent or grazing to a certain extent. Um, but they often sort of take out the part where you could lease it for, uh, in the future, you could lease it for um, energy development, like hydrocarbons. How common is that practice? Leasing the public lands for extraction? Yes. You know, I, I realize you don't have the numbers in front of you, but, it, I mean, are we talking about 10% of public lands, 40%? Yeah, it varies. I mean, essentially, a lot of public lands can, are open to this kind of um, development. It just sort of depends on what's underneath them and what the companies can, can get. So in any given area of public land, and that can include... Uh, the Bureau of Land Management's public land or the Forest Service, for example, uh, you can, you know, it kind of depends on the presidential administration, but quite a bit of land can go under under lease. And um, generally it's Bureau of Land Management land, which is less sort of um, pristine or uh, super beautiful land. But that kind of land is more and more finding value with different groups of users like um, mountain bikers, for example. So, the kind of idea of open spaces that we want to protect has shifted over time from these very beautiful cathedrals of nature to these broader uh, public lands, which in the past have been thought of more for oil, gas, or mining extraction. How much discretion does each new interior secretary for each administration get uh, in terms of how which lands are leased and and how stringent this process is? Yeah, they get quite they get quite a bit. So, under uh, George W. Bush, for example, you know there was a mandate for you know more, this sort of the same idea of energy independence, and you saw um, a lot more of federal public land go under lease for oil and gas and for coal, for example. Under Obama, he had policies with his interior secretaries, uh, Ken Salazar and Sally Jewell, to be more protective of the environment and and to uh, have a little bit of a greener mandate when it comes to climate change, for example. So there was less leasing of coal, for example, under Obama, um, even though there was quite a bit of uh, oil and gas leasing as well. So the the president and their uh, and the cabinet have a, a the, the way that they mu- manage those public lands are um, pretty open to to policy, although there's are a lot of regulations involved and a lot of um, uh, environmental impact assessments required. As you mentioned, President Teddy Roosevelt signed the Antiquities Act into law in 1906. Could you talk a bit about the purpose it served? Uh, throughout the history of our country and why it has at times caused political controversy? 
Yeah, well, so <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt uh, is in place so that he could protect places um, that he thought were of great value um, to the country that weren't being paid attention to by the Congress. And so the most famous example is the Grand Canyon, where Teddy Roosevelt thought, well, how do we preserve what this is in its essence? And he created the Antiquities Act to say that the minimum space required ought to be used to retain this cultural or um, historical heritage for the American people. Uh, in the case of the Grand Canyon, he sort of very successfully argued that you can't really circumscribe the Grand Canyon except for its, in, for its entirety because it's such an uh, awesome vista and it's this great American treasure that we should protect in perpetuity for future generations. So that started as a national monument and, of course, eventually became a national park. So the idea is to find places that are uh, of cultural significance, and those can be very, uh, very small plots of land or um, historical sites that protect uh, a certain uh, historical uh, event or the memory of that event. Uh, or it can be something like Bears Ears, which um, Obama designated, which is very important to five different tribes who have cultural heritage in southeast Utah. Uh, and so there are many, many artifacts across the desert there uh, from um, pots and campsites and granaries and former uh, uh, pueblos. Those are trying, the Obama administration was trying to protect those in their totality uh, from, from looting and off-road vehicle damage. And that kind of runs afoul of some of the local culture who um, are also, they also have a claim to some heritage there. And these are, um, in Utah in particular, those are um, pioneers and white settlers, often Mormon, and often ranchers. And they have their own sort of cultural relevance that they bring there, but oftentimes that meant families would go out and look for arrowheads or potsherds and take them home. So, And also potentially digging up ancestral graves and um, grave robbing. So there's a kind of looting of our American history there by, by one group against another group. Uh, and inside of those two competing cultural values, uh, Obama and Sec Secretary Sally Jewell made a declaration that we should protect all of that through uh, more stringent rules. And that's where the National Monument designation came in. Getting back to your Guardian op-ed, uh, a bulk of the piece uh, deals with the data uh, disproving the Trump administration's claims that uh, the, these monuments negatively affect the economy of the surrounding areas. Let's unpack some of this. Uh, what is the most compelling evidence you've seen that national monuments dedicated under the Antiquities Act do not negatively impact the surrounding communities in an economic sense? Well, economic surveys and economic findings. So, um, you know, there's a uh, group based in Bozeman, Montana, called Headwaters Economics, and they really do a great job of uh, 
doing a nonpartisan job of analyzing the economics of the interior West. And they looked at 17 different monuments um, over uh, 15 years, starting from 2001, and including monument designation. Actually, they went all the way back to 1970, excuse me. Uh, and they looked at the economic growth of these different counties that surround national monuments. And what they found was in each of those monuments, in all 17 monuments, there was no significant impact to economic growth after designation. In other words, all of the trend lines kept doing what they were doing, which is to say they went up. The sorts of jobs that surrounded or that, that were in those counties that surrounded the national monuments, those did change. And so, for example, you might have fewer ranchers in those counties, but more uh, tourism service. But the overall economic health of those counties of, of 17 different monuments continued to, to grow. What is the political advantage here? Is there actually a demographic that wants less nationally preserved land, even if, as you described, sure. we don't need the resources right now? Yeah, there are, there are large constituencies in the American West that don't like the federal government. They don't like any kind of government meddling or what they call overreach. They don't like the BLM. They don't like what they call the feds. They don't like the Forest Service. Uh, there's just a general antipathy toward federal governance in a lot of Western states by, uh, a, a, by a large margin. And uh, that's just a part of the cultural makeup of the states west of the 100th meridian, we call it, which is where, of course, America starts to get drier and more arid and, and more difficult to live in. And because of the history of the United States, you had a more independent type of uh, outgrowth of uh, populations that just don't the federal government. So when the federal government comes in or a president comes in and says, hey, we're going to protect all of this and we're going to manage it through our federal agencies, uh, this constituency sees that as broad overreach. Um, they think that the federal government can't adequately manage the land that is, you know, basically in their backyard as well as maybe they could. And so there's a there's a broad movement to either stop that or, or at the extreme end, to take federal land and have it transferred into the hands of uh, the state, in which case it stands a very good chance of being sold. And this is related to some of the militias that we've seen, the standoff. And... Yes, correct. That's um, at the heart of the standoff of the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Oregon uh, in 2015. Certainly the ideology of, of those folks, these sons of this Nevada rancher named Cliven Bundy and their supporters uh, basically... Uh, um, espouse this ideology that they want to take back, and back is in quotes there because it never belonged to any, um, any state, but to, to take this land from the federal government and somehow redistribute it to uh, the dominant sort of class of people there, which is to say the, the sort of sons of settlers, um, kind of overlooking the fact that a lot of this land was once... Uh, indigenous land. And do you feel that Trump is reaching out 
to this demographic of folks through this action? Uh, I think that it's hard to say whether Donald Trump has a political strategy in place. Uh, I write in my op-ed that it seems more like by some chance, and there are you know political things in there, but some of the more vocal opponents of these monuments, for example, in Utah, including a very powerful senator named Orrin Hatch, all Republicans, they have the ear of Donald Trump somehow through political connections of some kind or just the way that Washington works. And, and Orrin Hatch was able to sort of pester Donald Trump long enough to si- sign this review, an executive order asking his interior secretary to review these monuments. And so it, it feels a little bit more like expediency or political naivety on Trump's part, just as, you know, he'll taking advice from him, give it to him, and he's, you know, acting in a uh, presidential fashion to come up with some executive orders. And this is an executive order within almost within his first 100 days. So it was uh, kind of astounding that this would be one of the top priorities of the president coming in, especially from a president who really doesn't come out west and I don't think has ever set foot on any of these um, public lands. Why do you think it was such a top priority? I, 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 it's hard to say. Um, you know, I think it does in a way. If you go after Bears Ears, for example, um, that was that was designated by Obama, and I do think that the Trump administration is very, very excited to undo anything it can that Obama did during his presidency. And I think that does uh, does make for political hay for the base of Trump supporters that really hated Obama. So. That you could take all the way back to the birther stuff. What other plans does the president have in regards to publicly preserved land? Oh, that's, a, that's a great question. You know, the Zinke turned in his review, and the White House confirmed that they had it, but they didn't put out any extra information on it. And, you know, one of the main characteristics of the American West is its vast reaches of public land. It's what makes, you know... Um, our beautiful, you know, spacious skies and whatnot. Um, and we really don't have any indication from this president ha- of a coherent policy other than energy, you know, energy greatness. And so we're seeing more, more coal and other extractive industries sort of, sort of ramp up and environmental regulation be um, pushed down. Um, but other than that, it doesn't seem like he has a grand plan for how to preserve or otherwise manage our public land. Finally, in our last minute here, I realize these aren't the types of monuments you're talking about, but do you have an opinion on the debate over Confederate monuments currently taking place across the country? Yeah, I mean, I think that Confederate monuments, um, in the way that they were put up and the reasons that they were put up, um, don't really deserve a place of, of high regard um, on a pedestal in, in glimmering bronze. Uh, I think the real monuments to American greatness are in its wide open spaces in the way that we seek as a society to um, preserve 
these great, great lands, the, the wildlife that is on them, our, our clean water, our clean air, things that are real American legacies, um, those things ought to be held in high regard and not some of our, our race's history, although that history should not be forgotten. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Brian Calvert, the editor-in-chief of High Country News, a Colorado-based magazine that covers the American West. His editorial, The Trump Administration's National Monuments Review is a Sham, appeared in The Guardian on August 24th. You're listening to Trump Watch on WBAI, 99.5 FM, Pacifica Radio, New York. I'm Jesse Lent. And that's going to do it for this week. You can hear all 40 episodes of Trump Watch with Jesse Lent at soundcloud.com slash trumpwatchwbai or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Facebook or Twitter or contact me directly at the email address jesse at wbai.org. And I'll be back next Wednesday at 6.30 p.m. when we'll break down another aspect of the Donald Trump administration. Until then, I'm your host, Jesse Lent. Talk to you next time. Conrad Tokyo Spark.